Evil Dead was not the original title. The original title was Book of the Dead. And when we first uh, took it out to be sold, our agent, a fine man by the name of Irvin Shapiro, said, Fellas, people are going to think they have to read for 90 minutes if you call it Book of the Dead. Call it The Evil Dead. We thought it was the dumbest title we've ever heard, but uh, what do we know? This is a swamp in Brighton, Michigan. Sam is the actual cameraman. I am pushing him in an inflatable raft from behind, and the camera, 16 millimeters, taped to his hand. Now, Sam will lie to you about this car. He calls it a classic. It's a 73 Delta 88 Oldsmobile, and it's a piece of junk. This car had been in numerous Super 8 millimeter movies of Sam's in the past, and for some reason he felt obligated to use it in this movie. We tried to wreck it, but it didn't work, and you'll find out that this movie is in almost every one of, this car is in almost every one of Sam Raimi's movies from this point on. Now, these good folks are all from Michigan, all these actors, myself included, and they were assembled uh, very delicately and carefully because no one really wants to be in a horror movie. You'll notice that one of the actors is wearing a uh, Michigan State t-shirt. That's where Sam Raimi and Rob Tappert went to school. Now, this is called the force, this roaming entity. That is done strictly by bolting the camera to a 2x4 with a wide-angle lens and running really quickly. This was also uh, before the days of stuntmen. So on a lonely road in rural Tennessee, we just sort of had to trust that a bunch of uh, moonshine-swilling yahoos weren't going to kill us for this little stunt. And fortunately, they didn't. So let's sit back and watch some fine acting. Yeah, well, I was 21 years old, so you can't really blame me, okay? Yeah, this lousy horn. Now watch carefully, folks. See these two idiots? That is Sam Raimi and Rob Tappert. Right there. Yes, and they'll brag about their wonderful performance, but we all know that they're just a couple of stiffs. Now see that moonshine in Scott's hand there? Uh, that was actually from some footage that was cut out, and my reaction there is actually reacting to a scene where we all sipped moonshine, but it didn't make any sense that kids from northern Michigan would all of a sudden produce moonshine. So now it doesn't make any sense, so there you have it. Now, Ellen Sandweiss on the far left in the back seat had been in a bunch of uh, high school plays with us and Super 8 movies. The other actors were cast. I think this is where we get off. Yes, this is a dangerous bridge in uh, rural Tennessee. We filmed outside of Knoxville, Tennessee, on a real craggy old bridge. Now, these logs that are falling here, we call them affectionately It's Murder Beams because it's from an old Super 8 movie we did called It's Murder, where we use a bunch of these, these U-shaped beams that are really styrofoam. They're just really handy if you want to break them over somebody's head, and we'll get to that later in the movie. The gentleman sitting right there in the front seat is not the actress. That's Sam Raimi pretending to be... Uh, old Teresa Tilly, who was in the front seat there. Named Sarah York, by the way, because she didn't want to use her real name. Can you blame her? Um, now, this cabin that you're going to see shortly actually was in the middle of nowhere. And we thought it would be a good idea to introduce the geography of this place by just plain showing it to you, just putting the camera on the top of a van. You can see the camera, you know, slapping into the tree branches as we go and taking you for a ride down this lonely road. The cabin, in fact, does exist, uh, portions of it today. It burned down a year or two after we were filming. Sam will probably tell you a horrible lie about that. It really just burned down 
by a bunch of yahoos who came and lit a fire in it. The fireplace is made out of wood, uh, I'm sorry, stone, and recently at a film festival in Illinois, someone brought me a hunk of stone from the fireplace. That They tracked it down, and I signed their stone. Yes, folks, they've got plenty of free time on their hands. The idea here is to establish a sort of creepy presence. This furniture uh, was built by a guy named Dart, Steve Frankel. He was the, we called him the art director, but he was really a carpenter who was very handy with a, with a skill saw. This cabin was in pretty miserable shape when we found it. It had about four inches of cow manure on the floors because uh, cattle were just roaming freely through the place. It had a very low ceiling and a couple of extra rooms that we didn't need. And it had no basement whatsoever. So the first couple of weeks that we were there, any actor or any crew member who wasn't doing anything was assigned to work on the cabin, stripping off old newspaper-like uh, wallpaper, digging the... Uh, the basement, and um, tearing out ceilings and scraping cow crap off the floor. So it was a very glamorous event, let me tell you. It's supposed to be one of these on here. Yes, wasn't that creepy? Now, inside here, you're going to get a good look at the cabin. I think Sam did a very good job establishing what this place looks like, where it is, so that you're ready to be taken on your scary journey. The one thing that I think you'll find different about the pace of The Evil Dead is it's a little slower. It was shot, as I said, in 1979, and we weren't any, in any huge hurry. It was long before, you know, the wacky world of MTV. And the pace gets slower at times, and I think you can use that to build tension and to set good moods. Obviously, in the background there, we were losing daylight. Because on low-budget shoots, you just sort of have to get it shot whenever you could. We initially designed to start... Uh, the movie in the summer in Michigan, it was, uh, took us a little too long to raise the money, so we didn't actually start filming until fall of 79, and we had to go south because Michigan was getting too cold. So we found this cabin uh, in Tennessee in the middle of nowhere. A lot of the stuff, the set dressing in here is reminiscent of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You'll find in some of the scenes in that of you know, uh, feathers and bones and things hanging. We thought it was very creepy because Texas Chainsaw was a definite influence because it was, it's really a classic and it scared the crap out of all of us. The score, the wonderful haunting score is done by the one and only Joe LaDuca who has worked uh, with us pretty much to this day on uh, numerous film scores and he also scored, uh, you know, Xena and Hercules, The Legendary Journeys. So now that we know where everything is, the story will slowly begin. Sam wanted a very specific uh, sort of a grandfather clock that had the arm because he had a sequence in mind where time essentially stops, which you'll see here shortly. That's Ellen Sandweiss. She's our cohort from the Michigan days, doing plays and whatnot. She was very game. We wanted to work with someone on this particular role that we knew and that we could uh, beat the crap out of, and she wound up uh, doing a very good job. Join us. You can hear that is probably Sam Raimi's voice doing that. During the course of doing the sound in New York City years later, 
uh, we all pitched in and did various things. Something bad is happening. Now Ellen is actually sort of tracing over a drawing that the uh, our makeup artist Tom Sullivan did. He was a very accomplished artist and he gave her a template here to draw from which is sort of a premonition for the evil Book of the Dead that they will find soon enough. Book of the Dead being based on um, sort of the uh, Sumerian Book of the Dead, I believe otherwise known as the Necronomicon. A little lesson there for you. Whatever you do, don't look in the cellar. Yo, it startled me, just like it should have you. Okay, this is our lame attempt at ad-libbing this early scene. This is a bunch of highly inexperienced actors attempting to be um, charming, witty, and urbane. And unfortunately, I don't think it quite pulls off. Sam wanted the drink that they were mixing, it's like a berry drink. He wanted it to be like blood, clearly. He said, I... Yes, notice there's a lot of editing here to uh, take out various lame things that didn't work. Now, he says party down in another language when the film was translated, they translated it like he said, pour it down. We were assuming it meant his drink or whatever. Now, this piece of music is uh, sort of reminiscent of, um, I believe it's called, uh, what is it? Something, uh, Mysterious Island. That's it, a famous Bernard Herrmann piece because we like the music so much. So we insisted that Joe LaDuca sort of uh, emulate that. Whatever it is, it's still down there. I don't like cellars. Now, they're looking into the uh, non-existent cellar that we had to dig about four feet down. And you'd think, well, why didn't they dig the rest of the cellar? Because we knew there was a very good cellar back up in Michigan. So you'll see this young fella here that's uh, rich. His uh, real name is not what it appears in the movie. In the movie, he's credited as Hal Delrich, but that's only because his first name was Rich, and he had two roommates, Hal and Del. So that's how he created his stage name. The woman on the right there uh, in the movie is credited as Sarah York, and we kind of helped her with that name. We thought, if you're going to go with a fake name, make it sound like some phony Hollywood name. So good old quote-unquote Hal is going down into the basement here, and now you will see that he will appear in a root cellar outside of Marshall, Michigan, at a farmhouse that was in Rob Tappert's family. One of these days. Hey, Scotty, you find anything? Scotty. Notice that there's no ceiling above them. We had to tear that out. Where those beams were is actually where the ceiling was, but we couldn't put any lights anywhere, so we had to tear the whole darn thing out and fix lights up and up all above and around there. Made filming much easier. Main room was actually cut in two. We tore out, tore out a whole wall so that we could create a large main room. Okay, okay, relax. 
All right, I lied. I'm going down into the basement now, and you'll see that appear very shortly in Marshall, Michigan. Notice how I sort of have to go around the corner because there was no place for me to go. It's a little cheese ball, but what can we say? We were young and foolish. That's Marshall, Michigan there looking back up to Knoxville, Tennessee. Isn't it wonderful? Several months later, I might add. Coming up here, these cheese ball shoes drove me insane. Sam wanted something that would be timeless. He wanted me to wear colors that would not get outdated. Notice I have a pen and a pad of paper in my pocket. Why I have that in there, I have no idea. But as a dork person who was 21 years old, I actually sort of carried that stuff around. Maybe I had to make notes while we were filming or something. I have no idea. It became continuity. Um, this cellar uh, was really cool because it had a dirt floor and rock walls, and we thought it was really ideal, and you don't find that many cellars. This is sort of uh, typical of those Midwestern cellars. So we thought, well, what the heck? The sound you're hearing, there's a very light, trilling sort of wind here. That is from an Orson Welles movie called The Third Man. And that's the beauty of uh, sound. You can sort of steal things from other movies when there isn't music to get in the way. Now these drips here, Sam wanted to emphasize them more specifically, so we actually put Karo syrup instead of water on top of the pipes. It would elongate the drips. All these scary sounds were recorded in New York City probably uh, at least two to three years after we filmed this. The, the film took from 1979 to 1983 to actually make. It didn't get into theaters until 1983 because we kept running out of money and filming some more. So you can sort of, if you watch carefully, you can watch me age a couple years, go from Mr. Babyface to less of a babyface, and I'm sure you'll see my hairstyles change a little bit. But that's the beauty of motion pictures. Notice the hanging gourds. Sam had sort of a thing about these hollowed out gourds. They were all over the property up there in Michigan. So Sam thought, yeah, yeah, let's put them from, hang them from strings. That'll be good. We're going to shift locations again shortly here, folks. Coming up, we're going to go from Marshall, Michigan to Franklin, Michigan in Sam's garage because we needed to film some additional scenes. So right in here, bingo, we're now in Ferndale, Michigan, <laughs> several months later. And it was tricky because we didn't really pay the actors much. Everyone got 100 bucks a week. And uh, they had to go off and do other jobs, so we could only get them back when we could. Now look closely at the Hills Have Eyes poster in the background there. Sam's theory, and he'll explain this probably in his commentary, I'll just do a better job, is that in the movie The Hills Have Eyes, there's a poster of Jaws ripped in half in a scene where the bad guys bite the head off a little bird and drink its blood. And Sam interpreted that as that as horrible as Jaws is, it's not as horrible as what's happening in that trailer. So what Sam figured was if he took the Hills Have Eyes poster and tore that in half, we would say, no matter how scary Hills Have Eyes is, it's not as scary as what you're watching right now. And so between the several movies, Sam and Wes Craven have sort of been communicating that back and forth, sort of challenging each other. Uh, these props were uh, built by Tom Sullivan, who was an artist and he's also a sculptor. And uh, he sort of built these things by hand that's the, the death dagger and the, the actual Necronomicon, the Book of the Dead, that he did all the drawings for as well. Come on, let's take this stuff upstairs. I'll grab the recorder and you get everything else now.
I feel a premonition coming on. That's a little cheesy mat shot up in the upper right-hand corner there. Uh, if you look closely, you'll see the actual square around the moon. I hate when that happens. Now, folks, I'm going to tell you a little story about this. I'm not going to lie to you. These kids are supposed to be sitting around uh, smoking marijuana beginning of the scene. And um, we decided to actually try it for real. And yes, I did inhale, unlike certain presidents of ours. And the footage wound up being absolutely useless because uh, several of us had never smoked marijuana before in our lives and got so con utterly confused the footage was worthless. So a lot of this footage here we had to refilm later when we were a little more coherent. The voice you're hearing is a guy by the name of Bob Dorian. And those of you who watch American movie classics uh, will recognize him as the, uh, the host of American movie classics, or at least once was. We recorded him in a back room in New York City for cash, I might add. But that's another story. The idea here is they find this creepy stuff in the basement, and Sam wanted this to really act as a, as a tale, a scary story that kids would sit around a campfire listening to, but instead of telling it, they're listening to it. That cheeseball Panasonic recorder was one that my father used to use in advertising for years, and we decided to have it. We used it to put sound to a lot of our Super 8mm films, and it was still alive, so we just brought it down. It was a cheap prop. For. Just getting good. I just don't want to hear it anymore, that's all. Obviously now the story is about to uh, about to heat up. Some bad things are about to happen. I don't want to spoil it for you. You know, for those of you who have seen the movie forty seven times, I wouldn't want to spoil this part for you. Now listen carefully here. I I'll interpret for you. Listen to the next piece. Saman Sarub. That means Sam and Rob are the hitchhikers on the road. A little-known fact for you folks. That was a pretty simple effect. We dug a trench, a trench uh, put some red lights underneath there with a, a red gel over the top of it with two-by-fours and lifted the, uh, the leaves up. Very big, big special effect. This was a big stunt. In these days, this would be considered a stunt ramming a tree branch through a window. Several local police officers came by to see what was happening and they waited and waited for us to set up the shot and then they got bored and left and three minutes later we shot the scene. This was high drama, this scene. I want you to know. Method acting. Another one of these wonderful mat shots where you can see the little square in the upper right-hand corner. But I hate to give away all these trade secrets. Why don't we stay up for a while and listen to the storm? All right, yeah. Let me check on Cheryl first. That's what teenagers do, right? They stay up and listen to storms. They don't... No hanky-panky in this movie, folks. Because the rule of horror films, and you'll find out that very soon, kids who have sex in horror films will die very shortly. Now, this wonderful little gem that you're about to see was from a place in Michigan called Corey's Jewel Box. And uh, Sam Raimi picked that out because the magnifying glass at the end of this thing was actually going to be used in a scene near the end of the movie where the morning sun was going to come through the window, refract through the magnifying glass, and hit the Book of the Dead and burn it and save the day. 
But that concept sort of changed, so we just wound up with an incredibly ugly uh, necklace that no boyfriend would ever give any girlfriend unless he didn't like her. This is called Eye Games, this piece of music, and it'll refrain later when she is possessed and I'm much worse for wear. Oh, Ash, it's beautiful. What is it? That's what she should have said. Oh, boy. Ouch. Now, this little shot here was filmed several months later. We actually lost the original necklace. We wanted to get a close-up. So you can see there's sort of gold on the inside. The only one we could find was gold, so we had to spray paint it silver. And you can actually see the silver on her fingers because the paint came off on her fingers. Don't you hate when that happens? I'm going to give it to you before we come up here, but... I'll be quiet because yeah. we want to hear this dialogue. Really the first chance we've... That mirror, of course, will come to play in future Evil Dead movies, but I wouldn't want to give that away either. Coming up here is one of these sort of classic, what well, we call it the Force, this roaming entity. We referred to it as the Force. Now in there, this sound is comprised of a wind, a low drone, uh, a rumble track like, a, like an earthquake, and Sam Raimi's voice that we then processed later to make it sort of uh, echoey and distant. So, because what that did is whenever it would move, Sam would go, wow. Yes, yeah, like in here, you hear little movements, and that's really Sam just being a bigger ham than I've ever been. Now, this was the big cheese shot in the whole movie. We, we felt pressured to have one cheesy, just have some woman take her shirt off. That's all we knew. It's, so I think she had to have a few drinks before she could do this. I can't confirm that, of course, folks. Um, but finally she did it because we convinced her that it would be no big deal and would last about three seconds, which, of course, it did. Because the idea that you got to have sex and violence in horror movies never really computed to us. You just got to have... Lots of blood and gore if it's a horror movie, which you'll see plenty of that as well. Now these types of scenes are always my favorite, is a character being very scared, yet venturing out into a completely dark woods all alone and talking to themselves. Now you may hear a very sort of subtle chamber sound. It's like a, it's like a drone. Uh, no, not the wolf, but you can hear a very, very subtle sound. And what that is, is when we were mixing the movie in New York City, uh, the control panel had a problem with one of the faders, and it left an open chamber, and we were actually getting some feedback and some reverb. But whenever, So whenever you open that fader, which is the little the volume knob, that sound came up. And uh, without doing anything, so we could just lay down long sections of this sound because we, we thought it was a good ambient sound just by a mistake that was in the control panel. So there you have it, folks. Didn't cost us a nickel. I think that was a little bit of a better moon mat shot. You can't see the edges quite as typically, and it's Sam wanted the moon to play pretty prominently in this in this whole thing. So you're going to see the moon three or four different times. 
I know someone's out there. Now, why she had to go this far into the woods to ask that question is sort of beyond me. I guess she must have heard something. I heard you. I heard you in the cellar. Now, that sound, that wrenching sound you heard, was actually from a recording we did on a Super 8 movie called Within the Woods. It was a movie we used to raise money to make this movie. And it was actually just a simple apple crate that we uh, yanked uh, one of the slats of wood off and it caught a rusty nail and made a very good sound, so we uh, just decided to use it as a good startling noise. Again, you'll hear Sam's voice intermittently through this. This whole sequence is one of the larger sort of force sequences in there. And Ellen Sandweiss was in the movie called Within the Woods that we did back in Michigan that we showed investors that we could actually make a scary movie. And so there is a similar sequence in that Super 8 movie that, no, even on uh, bootleg, you probably won't be able to find it. And if you do, it's a very poor quality. And you'll see si similar scenes in there that were in this movie because it gave us a chance to test out scenes to see if we could uh, sort of perfect scary sequences and moments. These are all pretty simple effects. Uh, a lot of these vines were filmed in backwards motion. You can see sort of a pre-rip there in her, her white robe. It was simply making the, you know, scoring it ahead of time. So it already had a rip, putting the scars on her skin already and pretty much just revealing them and putting a whip sound effect to it. We're, we're very big on hokey sound effects, which you'll probably hear, because we figure if you're going to make a horror movie, you know, it better be creepy and weird. This was all shot in reverse motion. That's how you get the vine to actually go up and turn the corner around her leg. We actually filmed it where we pulled the vines away from her and then reversed it. It's really the only way to get vines to be intelligent. They're usually very difficult. That was another breast shot, folks, for those of you who are counting. Joe Bob Briggs, I know, does. Now, this is a very difficult scene. At this point in the movie, we lose about 30% of the women in the audience, and I, I have no idea why. Oh, yeah, that's why. Um, this film was unrated. Gee, what a surprise. Uh, we didn't uh, want to submit it to the ratings board because we were concerned that they would give us uh, an X rating, which would pretty much kill a motion picture, so we decided to release it unrated. Uh, but even that, uh, it forced us to be limited in some areas. If your movie is unrated, there's a number of uh, television stations and radio stations and newspapers that will not run your ad because if you say it's unrated, they're not sure and they don't want to uh, give a false indication. Bless their hearts. So this begins uh, part of the chase sequence here that will get faster and faster. And Ellen, as you can see, is wearing very little. And usually in, in films these days, an actress or an actor would be padded from head to toe. They'd have knee pads, they'd have elbow pads, they'd have butt pads, they'd have pads for the pads. But this was 1979 with a very sort of rough and ready to go actress and she was like, well, let's just do it. So during the course of filming this, uh, you know, she would always walk away with some cut or scrape or scratch or bruise and, you know, she, uh, she hit her point of no return several times. Some of these tracking shots are done on a, a dolly track that was not the standard dolly track that you might see on, you know, Entertainment Tonight. It was made out of plywood, and we used a, uh, a wheelchair to travel the camera with her. 
And on several occasions, there was blood on the uh, plywood because of what Ellen had to go through. Those reeds are very dry and cracky, and it's, it's kind of miserable. Obviously, there's no pads, folks. So she was a pretty good sport. It was also freezing. You don't really know that, because by the time we got down there and started filming, it was late November. We filmed November, December, January. And, of course, Michigan had one of the mildest uh, winters on record, and uh, Tennessee had one of the coldest, so go figure. Hey, wait a minute. I've seen those keys before. If she can just get her hands on those keys. This particular sequence we had filmed before in our Super 8mm prototype. Again, these are more shots where you mount the camera on a board and you put one person on either end of the board and you can run up and go over bushes and around things and it's very, it's very easy. Because we shot in 16mm, the camera equipment was very light and mobile and agile. Is she going to get in or not, folks? I'm terrified. Now, again, there's a good, good example of Sam's voice hamming it up. Now, this is known as a one-er, this type of shot, where there is no, there are no edits. The shot just plays in one. And you'll see near the end of the end of the sequence, um, I can't get my jacket on. And another actor, uh, Rob may tell this story. He loves to tell this one. But there's an actor coming up here, Rich. Oh, he tilts his head back because he blew his line actually, and he was reacting to that. So, just when you're laughing at him, get ready to laugh at me because I go to put my jacket on. I I can't get it on, so we have to cut before. Um, before we realize what a what a boo-boo I did. Hey, you can stay somewhere in town tonight. Let me just put my jacket on here. I oh, oh, oh. I hate when that happens. Happens a lot, folks. That's the magic of movies. It's called editing. Now this of course is still Tennessee. Shortly they will get inside the car, and the interior of the car will be Franklin, Michigan, in Sam's garage. That's the beauty of darkness. When you film during the day, you're always going to see stuff in the background. But at night, you can just simply not light the background, as you will see right here. The wall of Sam's garage is probably four feet away. But by putting up sort of a, like a black uh, fabric, you can block that out. This was filmed several months later, probably six months later. Will the car start? Incidentally, the fog that was used was a horrible oil-based substance that got in camera lenses, and I'm sure that in about 10 years from now, I'll regret ever doing it. Nowadays, they have to use a fog that is water-based. It's much safer, but in those days, we couldn't be bothered with that. We used the old oil-based stuff, and it was truly heinous. It had a very distinct smell. Now this road, you can see the car backing out here. We filmed that in probably December or January with photo doubles in the car because a lot of our actors had to leave. That road at that point was a solid mud track and we had to put down a lot of straw in order to uh, make that work, in order to get the car to move anywhere. Eventually we had to just walk up and down that road, which was about a quarter mile uh, just on foot because no vehicle would make it down there. 
here's Sam's garage again. This is a very interesting shot, watch carefully. When I get out of the car, it'll look like I'm tilting to the left, but the car looks like it's straight. Sam will probably explain this in his story, but well, now you get it twice from two different angles. What he did was the camera is act, the car itself is actually pulling up on an embankment, so the car is tilted to the right. The camera is also tilted to the right to match the angle of the car so that the camera and the car are on the same tilted degree. Therefore, me walking straight will look like I'm tilted in the opposite are direction. Doing? Are you confused? Because I am. Anyway, that's how that shot was done. Ashley? Okay, now uh, poor Ellen has to get out and walk in the darkness again, talking to herself. It's sort of a recurring theme in almost any of these sort of late 70s horror movies. There's a lot of monologues going on in front of nobody. Now watch behind her here. Right here, you'll see two lights in the background. Well, that's not really the car itself. That's just two lights we put in a road to simulate headlights. Just because we could, folks. Pretty soon, she will discover the, uh, the collapsed bridge that is folded up. Sometimes it's a little hard to see, but it's folded up like a curled hand, like the bridge has been destroyed and evil entity has torn it up to stop them from leaving with the same dangerous bridge sign you saw earlier. Now, one of the disadvantages of night again is that we actually did tear this up the bridge. It was an abandoned bridge and they let us tear it up. But again, because of night photography and not having enough money to really light the whole bridge, we couldn't show very easily that it was totally destroyed. Now this sequence was filmed in, Mar in uh, Gladwin, Michigan, several months after the Marshall, Michigan footage because we had about two more weeks of additional photography. So again, you sort of see us change throughout the course of this, uh, this film. Again, same uh, false headlight look. It's not really a car back there. It's just two lights planted. This was our one and only crane shot in the whole movie, which was done on a scissor lift. It wasn't a fancy Hollywood crane. It was just a, something they would use to, uh, for construction. Listen carefully. This is Bob Dorian now talking again. His voice changes from Evil Dead 1 to Evil Dead 2 because we couldn't get Bob Dorian back. Plus, we didn't even know we were going to do a sequel at that point, so you just have to do what you can. Well, that's a premonition if I've ever heard one. Um, the seven. What suit? Um, diamonds. Uh, no, no, wait. Um, hearts. Oh my God, seven of hearts. You're right. We thought it was kind of funny that she's just clearly lying to her friend for no good reason. I don't know. I don't know, but I think it's really some sort of extra sense or something. Possibly just to set up later on. It's a seven. I don't believe. Yeah, she's she's still tormenting her. Now, this is going to be uh, the first, quote-unquote, possession in the movie. You'll see that um, Ellen Sandweiss has very white eyes when she turns around. Now, this was before the days of fancy, you know, uh, soft contact lenses. These were large hunks of glass called scalaral lenses that fit over the entire eye. We had them specially made for the actors that had to be possessed, but there was a limitation that you could only keep them in for 15 minutes at a time because your eye needed to breathe and you could only do that five times a day. So whenever an actor had to wear these, we had to be very careful 
to set up two or three shots that we could do very quickly so that we could um, get the eyes, you know, the, the context back out of their eyes. Notice the fine work around the fireplace. That's uh, Brother Don did the fieldstone work there because Sam wanted to look a little more aggressive, a little more like teeth. Don sort of failed, but that's all right. He's a nice guy. Now, if I'm not mistaken, this was Rob Tappert's genius idea. He thought the Achilles tendon is the most vulnerable part of a person. So let's have the monster stab this woman in the Achilles heel. Ooh, I hate that. The sound effect that you heard was um, we took a knife and stuck it into an apple because we thought, you know, your Achilles heel would sound like an apple. That's what we figured. Again, this is no pads, there's no stunt coordinator, it's just us being foolish. Sam and I had done a bunch of this nonsense from years past, and so we would just fling ourselves against the wall and didn't think anything of it. Of course, you know, now that my, my back goes out every five minutes, uh, now I think about it. Same thing here, Rich, now throw yourself against the wall. Yeah, kind of like that, good. Only do it about four or five times. We also had one camera only. A lot of stunts these days, they will film with two, three, four cameras or more. Now coming up here, you'll see sort of a dummy head that he's hitting. That way you could actually just hit the thing with the, you know, the, the butt of the ax and not have to worry about an actor or an actress. Your basic rubber hand, because you gotta slam those rubber hands. Now at this point, the monsters, when they get possessed, we took their voices and we pitched it down. We pitched the quality of their voice down, which is called harmonizing. Makes it sound inharmonious, but it's harmonizing. This is about one of the first sequences in the movie where the audience will start to pay attention. There's that darn square match shot again. Don't you love it? And what that is, is that's actually ink being poured into uh, sort of a fish tank and acting as moon. Now, as I came into the room, you might have noticed that I was limping ever so slightly. That's because Sam Raimi and Rob Tappert poked my ankle with a sharp stick after I uh, sprained my ankle pretty horribly running down a hill in an earlier scene. Careful of that ankle. Careful, buddy. Now, this is another sort of stab at drama here of uh, how a monster can slowly drive someone insane. I like this point of view shot, though. I think it's a good perspective of filming a scene where you don't have the conventional shots. It all takes place from the monster's point of view in the cellar. I thought that was a pretty good idea. And then in the morning, we'll get in the car, and we'll take the bridge. No, you can't take the bridge, because there is no bridge, you knucklehead. You know that. Big dramatic finish here. Well, her eyes went to Marshall, Michigan, because that's where this scene was shot. 
And at that point, she didn't want to put those lenses back in again for good reason. So that's really just a mask over her face. You notice that she doesn't blink. She thought, well, why don't I just put a mask on with the eyes in it? So the eyes have it. Another classic force shot. You always know something bad is going to happen whenever this force is around. Scotty, I think there's something out there. The understatement of the year. No, no, everything's fine. Come to bed, dear. Get some sleep, okay? Now, coming up here, you'll see what is called the Ramo cam. Essentially, it's a camera with a couple of people on either side who have a two by four in a T-frame. Their job is to break the window before the camera gets there. So that is gonna be just above the lens, this sort of T-bar configuration, and they ram it now. And again, there was no fake window. In those days, you just break a window. Um, a lot of times in modern filmmaking, they'll use a candy glass, fake glass, or it'll be triggered by sort of an electric uh, squib that'll, that'll break the window by itself. So we just decided to break the window. Now this wind that you're going to hear a lot through the movie is an actual wind that woke us up one morning in the, in the house that we stayed. It was very near this cabin. About 3 a.m., Sam woke up and he heard this really creepy wind just sort of howling through a window. And so he, he thought it'd be a great ambient track. So he woke up the sound man and said, quick, quick, John, come here, record this, record this. So he went, he turned it on and got a good 10 minutes of it. And uh, that wound up being the basis for the creepy wind inside this cabin. And I've actually heard it on subsequent movies after this movie came out. So people stole our sound like we stole the sound from the third man. So I guess we really can't complain. Oh, there's nobody there, but there's a Tamaqua t-shirt. This is for Camp Tamaqua in the Algonquin Park in Ontario, Canada, where Sam Raimi went to camp for many years. This is now uh, Rich's turn to go wandering into dark rooms, talking to himself. Now this point of view shot, this is a bathroom that doesn't really exist. We shot that in Rob's farmhouse and we didn't really have any walls. So we just took sort of a wall covering that was yellow and created a wall that wasn't really there. Folks, that's Sam Raimi's hand right there. He might not admit it, but it is. He's not there, but there she is. Now that was a little reverse motion section where her fingers went up against his face because you don't really want to jam your spiky fingernails into someone's face, so we had them against his face, and she just took them away real quick when we reversed it. Now, obviously, you can't shove an actress's head in the fire as much as you might like to, but so we used a little puppet head. I know you probably don't notice that at all. Thank you. And here we just took the fog machine and shoved it under her shirt and sort of gave her a good burst of fog. 
burning my pretty flesh. You have pretty skin. Now you're going to find out that it's pretty handy that he had that buck knife all this time. Now I got a thing about shelves. I don't know what it is. Okay, so obviously nothing landed on me here, but we figured, well, we have to delay Ash a little bit, otherwise he would jump in and want to help. So let's just pretend that he's weighted down by this one little piece of fiberboard. In retrospect, as all actors look back on their cheeseball performances, I really should have just pretended that I was more knocked out. But hey. Uh, incidentally, that is Sam Raimi's voice providing the monster. Now this is a classic case coming up here of why the movie has no rating. You gotta hand it to her, folks. Now the character Ash is really just a coward for the first full half of this movie until everyone else dies around him and he's forced to sort of pick up and carry the torch. Quite a delightful scene. A lot of these sound effects are courtesy of a turkey baster that we used in New York City to sort of use to make squishy goo sounds and um, a lot of carrots and celery and chicken bones that we brought into a New York studio to stab and twist and make those, all those gushy noises. Unfortunately, apparently months after we left, the place smelled like sort of rotting chicken. This is the longest scream in motion picture history, folks. Incidentally, that shot from behind there was the producer, Rob Tappert. He may not admit it, or he may brag about it, but it's him, folks because uh, the real actress was gone at that point. See, the film was supposed to go for about six weeks starting in November. Well, our shoot was 12 weeks, exactly twice as long as it should have been, and a lot of people had things to do. A lot of crew members had to go back, get back to their family, their life. This is Rob Tappert's sister, Dorothy, here, filmed in a uh, basement in Michigan, probably fully two years later. And Sam was kind of into the idea that these creatures spew you know, not only blood, but sort of milk and coffee and whatever else we wanted them to. Coming up here, you will find Ted Raimi's feature film debut. Where, you ask? Where? That would be Sam's little brother, by the way. Right there, a very young Ted Raimi playing a tentative Hal Del Rich. His feet, I mean. Now, coming up here, when we were first taking the movie around and talking to film distributors about what they felt the motion picture had to have in it, a guy at a certain theater chain said, Fellas, you gotta keep the blood running down the screen. So you'll see uh, a couple shots from now that it'll, it'll happen literally. Now what we used here was basically uh, bologna for parts of the leg, a big good hunk of bologna there, and cutting into that. Now that was the shot where the blood is literally running down the screen. So we took him literally. Now this is delightfully gory. Um, obviously, 
the fake parts are are all you know out of various sort of caro syrup mixed with you know food coloring and meat and squishy things like that. But you'll see some of the limbs are actually wiggling. Well, uh, Rob Tappert plays one of the legs, and what they actually had to do was get below the floorboards, stick their leg up through a hole in the floor, and then we would create a false end. So Rob Tappert is below the floor, the actress is below the floor, with her head sticking up and her arm. And of course, uh, they, they both got horrible cramps because it took a long time to remove the floorboards, put them in, and replace the floorboards. Caro syrup became my nemesis. That was the basis for the fake blood. And in the local town of Morristown, Tennessee, we bought about every amount of caro syrup they had. We'd buy gallons of the stuff, mix it with red food coloring and a little bit of non-dairy coffee creamer in order to give it an opaque look. And then we would put in a little bit of sometimes blue so it doesn't get too orange. And uh, the trick is you always test it on a white surface to make sure it's not too blue or too orange or too red or whatever. And he just dumped in heaps and heaps of red food coloring. So the locals were always pretty funny. What are you going to do with all that? Are you going to make a cake? Well, you sort of, yeah. That darn force is out roaming around still. It's not done. I always enjoyed this particular turn of events. It's where... You know, the lead character, who currently, you're kind of rooting for the other guy. My character, Ash, is just basically king of the losers at this point. He's a, he's a nebbish. He's a schmo. He's worthless. Look, I'm man enough. I can admit it. And uh, this character, you've been following this guy, the character Scott. But now, at this point, he says, I'm out of here, man. I'm gone. She can't even stand up. Well, then we'll leave her here. Until we can send somebody back. What, are you crazy? Look, I'm getting out. I don't care what happens to her. That's my favorite line. She's your girlfriend, you take care of her. Remember that, guys, you gotta take care of your, your own girlfriend. Okay, well, folks, let's face it. You know, he's dead. He's dead. Within minutes, he's dead. That is the absolute indisputable rule of horror movies. Anyone who has sex or goes walking in the woods or abandons their friend is dead. My hair's getting weird at this point because, you know, we didn't really have real hairstylists. We would just go to the local barber, and I'm sure at that point my hair was covered with caro syrup, and so I would get the weirdest sort of hairstyles. Coming up here is a very cool effect. Um, it's, it's animated, the wound that she had in her leg. Uh, it's not actually Betsy Baker, the real actress, because this close shot was done many, several years later, just in uh, basically a basement in Michigan. And you would take a frame and draw the spider web sort of infection out, take another frame. It was very much like animation. And the poor actress who uh, was the model for it got a horrible cramp in her leg as well. This movie is about cramps, folks. Oh, the traitor's come back. Now he wants help. There's a nice cheesy scar there. It's basically a rectangular place scar with no blending whatsoever, but this was not a sophisticated motion picture, folks. At the time, we thought it looked great. 
You're gonna be okay. We just figured put enough blood on there, it'll be fine. You'll see. See, now we're stuck with the hapless hero, so the audience basically feels that they've been betrayed and sort of screwed. We're gonna get out of here. Now listen to me, Scotty. Is there a way around the bridge? Scotty, listen to me, please. Listen carefully and you'll hear that that's Sam Raimi's groans because we just had to fill that in. We thought it was a little too thin, so Sam had to go, uh, 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 uh. You notice it doesn't really have the same audio quality as that actor. Okay, now there are two goons driving me insane. A demon in the cellar and the little Cupid doll. Well, he's toast. Guys, don't try that at home. Treat your girlfriends with respect. Time for some heavy drama here. Killer. Killer. Killer if you can. Now, with this big dramatic scene, normally as an actor becomes more experienced, they can figure out more sophisticated ways to sort of make themselves cry. But in this particular case, we really just took a a bowl, chopped up an onion, and sort of stuck it in their face. And if I'm not mistaken, there may be a shot in here where you can see a part of an onion stuck to Betsy's face. I might be a liar, but those of you can always go frame by frame and find out. I'm just teasing. She's lying, folks. This is where the audience, who's if they're clued in at this point, this is where all the, 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 the very intelligent college crowd, which is probably most of you watching this movie now and playing some horrible drinking game, this is where you, you realize that, of course, she's a horrible liar. Ashley. Ashley, help me. See, now my hair has become pretty much permanently infested with caro syrup. There's really no way to get it out. On many occasions, I would just go home from filming and step directly into the shower because it was the only way to get the caro syrup off of me. I actually broke a shirt one time because it was covered with caro syrup. I put it in front of the heater and it dried out, so I went to put the shirt back on and I broke a sleeve off. The audience knows. There's one of these uh, wonderful shots coming up that actors sort of cringe. Seeing you on your worst day. 
Get these great shots of the bags under my eyes. This was very near the end of the shoot. We had been going at this for about three months now, and this was a shot that we filmed much later. He's looking good, folks. Those hands were uh, courtesy of Ted Ramey again. Ted uh, played feet and hands, so he's a very multi-talented actor. Because you're so stupid. At some point coming up, you'll notice an interesting change in the makeup. Uh, Ash is going to drag her outside at one point, and uh, you'll see on the outside of the cabin, her demeanor and her makeup changes dramatically because we actually filmed the outside version first. See, now she's got a dark, sort of gravelly voice, and she has dark makeup, sort of witch-like. And so it was sort of a work in progress. And uh, we decided to go a different route, and so we made her more of like a Cupid doll, which we thought was more a little scary, but that's not bad either. Betsy did a very good job at being a possessed woman, you know, like a lot of girlfriends. Now, this is a scene which proves Ash's true ignorance, that he believes that, you know, this guy's, everything's going to be fine, we'll get out of here together. He hasn't gone through the rite of passage yet. He hasn't become a man yet. He's still just a sniveling college student, like most of you. We'll all be going home together. Wouldn't you like to be going home? Bet you'd like that, wouldn't you? Sorry, folks, you're on your own, Ash. Now, the fun thing was is that Betsy, because she had her white contact lenses, really had no idea where I was. So she would just come flailing at me with a, a knife in her hand and uh, a hope and a prayer. So it was a little more interesting sort of acting with blind, insane people with knives in their hands. That's where you're not really acting. You're like, get that knife away from my face. I've always enjoyed this sequence. I thought it was a, it's a pretty good sequence. It gets the audience pretty worked up where he's getting it from both sides, this poor sap who really couldn't do anything about 10 minutes ago. Now he has to defend himself. Now we got a little shot of milk coming up here, I think. Yeah, there's some good 2% milk coming out. It just gave a good variation and it, you know, lets you know that they're not just sort of normal people. 
Another one bites the dust. The one thing I like about this particular film that Sam Raimi's very good at is a dynamic range. We've just had a very loud sequence and a very sort of fast and furious sequence. And a lot of films today feel compelled to keep the noise and the editing just coming constantly. And what that does as a result, I feel, is it sort of numbs you to what's happening. This gives you a chance to settle down, have some quiet, go make a submarine sandwich, and get ready for the next piece in the movie. It's a very sort of long, quiet section, but it's a good chance to sort of calm down again rather than just getting hit over and over and over again by the next big event. That little rat we got from a local pet store, we encouraged it by turning a can of dust off that you can get at camera stores. When you turn it upside down, it sort of activates the Freon and becomes a very cold jet. So you turn it upside down and you just spray it at the rat's butt and they'll go, believe me. We were in a pretty rural area, so a lot of these old rusty chains and stuff were all very easy to come by. The one tricky thing here was we actually did at one point hold a running chainsaw over uh, Betsy's torso. And, you know, you got to be careful. There's no stunt coordinators. And, of course, everyone loves to, to point out, well, you can see the vein. You know, you can see her, her heartbeat in her neck. Why I'm stopping because of that cheesy necklace, I'll never know, but... This is where, of course, all the audience is screaming, No, no, you moron, cut her up, cut her up. This movie's very enjoyable with a large college crowd because all the big, tough, macho football players, when they get scared, they don't scream, they just swear really loud and hit each other. They're too macho, you see, to, to whimper and cower like they should like the character Ash here. And there's that darn wind sound again. I gotta do what every self-respecting boyfriend would do. I gotta bury her. Now, coming up, this particular piece of music is called Die Games. This is where the variation is between the earlier sequence where I was giving her the horridly ugly necklace and she was looking at my closed eyes. Now it's she's playing games with me, and as a monster, that's why we call it Die Games. About this point in the movie, I start getting sort of a permanent sweat. So I had to carry around a, a water bottle that was a little sprayer, like a garden sprayer. Just keep spritzing my face. Unfortunately, I had to do it for the next two movies after that, so... Oh well. Now, that actress in the background is not Betsy Baker anymore because this shot was done long after she left. That's a local uh, sort of wannabe actress who we met at a local community theater in kind of a lousy checkoff play and got to be very friendly with her. She was very game. Uh, we would say, hey, come on out here to this cabin and we're going to cover you with blood and put you in a cheesy wig and, and torment you for days on end. And she was like, oh, great, I'd love to. Maybe I'll bring something to eat. 
She was very pleasant and uh, very willing to be tormented. Like all good actors, with the cheesiest wig, she kind of, all of a sudden she has a Barbie wig on. That was our version of sort of matching and continuity. This shot, you could see that it carried, it followed Ash as he stepped across the grave there. And that was done with the camera and a two by four and a guy on either end. And you couldn't really look through the lens to see what was happening. This is a good stroke of luck. Uh, Sam's lying down on the ground with a camera and with this one shovel fill, it filled up everything but the one area where my face is. Now normally you'd have to do that 400 times to get that right. It just, every so often when you shoot enough footage, something cool happens. But wait, where's that wonderful necklace? There it is. Go get it, Ash. Sure, go ahead. What could possibly go wrong? Now, coming out of the ground here, that's actually another actress poking her head out of uh, basically ground-up manure and mixed with peat moss that we shot in Sam's garage. Now, that's this actress, Barbara Carey, who's um, ripping at my legs here. And uh, she had fake nails on, and actually some of it, she wound up sort of wrenching uh, part of her nails off. But that's true dedication. I thought I had it rough. Now, these are these It's Murder beams that I spoke of. These are these styrofoam beams that are very, very handy for hitting people in the face and jamming them in the face. Betsy Baker did not like this sequence because we you had to hit the person hard enough to actually break the beam, which is not like permanent damage, but definitely some, some damage. Good snot out of the nose there. For some reason, I thought it'd be good to show all kinds of wonderful emotion, I would spray the sprayer actually up my nose. I, these are just early acting experiences, folks, you know, experiments. I, I had no idea, so. Of course, that's a dummy head. Now, the blood that's blown on my face, it was a guy named Goody who did that, who worked on our crew. And, uh, it was just his favorite thing in the world to be able to be on the other end of that blood tube and blow blood in my face while my girlfriend is, my headless girlfriend is humping me. That's high art, folks. Now, of course, my face is completely clean there, but I won't tell if you won't. It's because when you film things way out of sequence, you can't always imagine what things are going to look like. You can't always plan ahead. Now I sort of have a little blood, and I got a bit black blood, because we thought I'd have black blood, but... It was later when we decided to just spew blood all over my face. This is really the point in the movie that it's really a, you know, one guy trapped alone in a cabin where weird things start to happen. This for me is my favorite part of the movie because I think visually it's very interesting and uh, dramatically at least you're kind of stuck. You're, you're stuck in this ride in this isolated cabin with this fool. Of course, the other fool tried this uh, closet, but uh, to no avail. So I figure, well, heck, I might as well try it.
Now, coming up, you're going to see that I, I shoot this creature with a shotgun. And again, before the days of, you know, complicated special effects, you basically would just take a shotgun and shoot a dummy. So that's what we did. That, of course, is not an actress at all. It's a, it's a man, uh, played by one of our assistants who was working on the movie, Kurt. And what a fine job he did. Now, coming up here, you're going to get another great shot of producer Rob Tappert. Just a few moments. Right about there. That's good old Rob, right there. Another fake hand. This hand, we decided, it's kind of like a Playtex glove that we filled with all kinds of stuff. We filled it with fake blood. And we put some uh, glass in there, as I recall, so that when you hit it, it would actually sort of tear the glove and the blood would come spurting out. Where did I see that box of shells? In the basement. Of course, I have to do all that running around with these stupid shoes, but that's all right. Now watch your step. Again, it's the sort of thing, all right, Bruce, just, you know, fall down the stairs on your butt and drag your elbow across those rocks. Yeah, that'll be fine. Sort of a fun sequence coming up here. What will look like a shot above the pipe looking down on ash that you'll see here shortly is essentially down on the ground, camera pointing up to the rafters, but there's a mirror above the pipe, so it's actually a reflection shot. And I'm sure that you're confused by that too, and so was I, but it, it looked good. This is a tribute to the Three Stooges. There's a sequence called The Plumbing We Will Go, uh, one of their shorts, where everything goes crazy and they hook the plumbing up all backwards and it starts to flow into all the light sockets and fixtures and things. And so this was our horror tribute to the Three Stooges. This was another uh, ode to the gentleman at the uh, theater chain, the blood running down the screen. thought that was very appropriate. Now this was a little sequence, this sort of vocal montage was the idea of our sound guy because it was a way to keep the sort of a recap in the character's head of everything that had happened. And it's sort of, uh, with all the, the good visuals going on, it's, it's kind of a fun audio treat as well to fill in some time. So now our character's becoming almost worthwhile. He's becoming the man that he soon will be. Now you'll notice we actually had to put dust on the record so you could see it moving. When you're filming a very dark object, you have to figure out a way to make it visible. And watch closely now, you can see a, uh, a wonderfully well-placed box of Band-Aids amid all the blood. This wider shot on the floor there, we didn't really uh, figure out how blood could adhere to dirt. So we just put down some garbage bags and sort of poured blood over that so it wouldn't soak into the dirt. This is my favorite sequence in the movie coming up. The entire section, as Sam will probably explain to some degree, is tilted at a 45 degree angle. 
I suppose in modern day standards, it wouldn't be that weird, but we all thought Sam was absolutely crazy when he said, I want to film this whole sequence at a very extremely tilted angles. And you'll notice he's pretty faithful to that all the way through. We didn't know what it would look like or how it would edit together. And, and Sam was pretty much of the opinion, well, just shut up and trust me. And this shot tilts from 45 degrees to this side and ends up 45 degrees to the other side. If we had continued on, the, the, the shot did continue. This shot is Sam hanging upside down in the rafters again with a camera taped to his hand and he's doing sort of a reverse sit-up. At this point, he's now very uncomfortable arching his back, pointing the camera at me. This whole sequence is about ridiculously difficult shots to get. This is now completely underneath me where it was a fake shoe that we swiped across the camera lens. I was up standing, my, my feet were on an actual box somewhere else and it was much easier to swipe an empty shoe across the lens. Again, notice the camera tilt. Coming up here is a very uh, entertaining shot. This shot basically took us an entire day. It's on a track directly above me, going above the rafters and moving with me as I walk. But when you have nothing but time, you get shots like that. That's partially why I think this movie has some appeal that there's some shots you don't see in normal movies. Now this was, I'm lying on my stomach, putting my hand into a kiddie pool with the frame of a mirror around it. And in order to get a reflection in the water, we had to pump about nine billion megawatts of light into my face, which was delightful. And again, in this sequence, it was Ash shoots a, his shotgun out the window, so we just take a shotgun and make sure everyone's out of the way, and you shoot out the window. But wait, Ash, where's that necklace? It's coming up. The scratches on my face here are, are real, thanks to Ted Ramey when his arms came through the floorboards. He actually did scratch my face, so we just decided it looked good. Now this will be uh, Ash sort of hallucinating various sounds here. The people are walking on the ceiling. And what that is, is that's Sam Raimi, folks. Yes, Mr. Director, walking around on a, in a recording studio with high heels taped to his feet because his feet were too big to fit in the shoes. Isn't that a nice, delicate walk? Cue the necklace. At this point, I'd kind of become an expert on how to make your hand look grimy for close-ups. See, my fingers are actually sort of sticking together. And what that is, is you pour the Karo syrup on, sort of rub it around, take some ashes from the fire, my character was ash, scrape it around, and then go outside and sort of just get grime in your fingernails. At this point in the movie, Sam wanted all sound to be completely eliminated. No wind, no clock, no nothing, no breathing so that it would get extremely quiet to get your attention. And I think it worked. That may have been Rob Tappert's hands. I'm not sure, they sort of look like Rob's. 
And of course, you can't really shoot someone in the face. So let's just shoot a dummy, you know. Now, unfortunately, you can kind of see the tube that was pumping the blood into her cheeks at that point. And I hate to admit it, folks, but that's the way it is. And outside that window, you can actually see sort of a black fabric. Because a lot of this we filmed during the day and blacked out the windows to make it look at night. Well, guess who's back to visit? Mr. Cowardly Traitor. Now, this is the original setup where the, uh, the small magnifying glass was going to play that the, the book gets near the fire but not close enough. You'll see the different variation of that. This is always a sequence that sort of uh, gets a pretty good response. The old eye gouge, which is basically a dummy head uh, filled with all kinds of delightful goo, and I just squeezed the pus out of his head. Now, you see I grabbed something here. Unfortunately, it's misinterpreted as one of his, um, oh, let's say a private part of his, but it's not true, folks. Uh, he, he supposedly got killed by the woods and had part of a branch sticking out from him, but because uh, where the camera was and how it was in context, uh, some people thought I was pulling something else off of him, and it's just not true, folks. By this point in filming, we filmed this, uh, this movie pretty much in, continu in continuity directly through. And you can see how messy that floor was. Every night we would have to, in order to be able to walk on it, we'd have to take the fire, which had burned down to ashes at the end of the night, and spread all the, all the ashes, all the remnants across the entire floor. So the floor used to be a delightful sort of brown color. By this point in filming, it's, it's totally gray and literally ash covered because it's the only way we could sort of soak up all the caro syrup and the goo. And these are the points where I pretty much would just have to go home and hop in the shower. One Sunday morning, I, I rode back in the morning because we'd film all night. I rode, I rode back in the back of a pickup truck uh, past a bunch of churchgoers because I couldn't sit on any seat because I would stick to everything. Yeah, Bruce, you know, just, Ellen, just hit Bruce in the back. He'll be fine. Just keep trying. That necklace has got to be worth something. Come on, get the thing. He got it, folks. Good catch. Throw it in. Now, what's going to be coming up is a uh, pretty involved animation sequence that was filmed over the course of about three months in a basement in Michigan. And uh, it took about three months because animation is so slow. We filmed some things down there in Tennessee, but we couldn't do the entire sequence um, because we knew the animation would be have to be filmed under very specific conditions. And right here is where it first begins. You've got blinks, you've got rotting, you've got hair falling out. So what we had to do is combine animation with a real live action, so we had to mat things together. So that's a combination of a guy wiggling combined with an animated rotting head, and you matted those together, and it makes a pretty good combination for a low-budget thing. Normally in a low-budget horror movie, you wouldn't see this much animation. Where it's gurgling there, uh, you can actually see sort of the skull shifting, and rather than trying to cover it up some other way, we decided to put a sound effect to the shifting mat lines, which normally just means your effect is a little, a little more primitive, but 
we thought, what the heck, let's just go with it. Again, this is a good example of getting everything really quiet for a couple of beats before it starts to get loud again. I think it's a good sound theory. And yes, that is oatmeal. Just when you thought it was safe. Uh, by the way, folks, that delightful concoction that hit my face was a combination of Kara syrup and Alpo dog food. It was good enough for Lassie. I guess it's good enough for me. And now the big finale. This this little that section there where it hits the ground and the head actually seems to rise up. It's because it was filmed uh, upside down and turning the camera upside down so that when the goo hit, it would actually fall down and make it look like it was more of an explosion. And I just confused myself again, but I thought it was a good trick. Those were some delightful cockroaches. Uh, some of them were Madagascar cockroaches that when you picked them up, they would hiss at you. They're about uh, three inches long. We picked those up uh, courtesy of Michigan State University in the science lab. But I guess everything's okay now. Again, we had to estimate what the aftermath was lo you know, would look like because we we had no idea. So we put a couple different colors there, some blue, some green, and we at least knew the positions that this guy would sort of rot here and she would sort of rot there. And knowing that we'd have to fill in all the gaps uh, at a later date. Clock is ticking again. And now I believe this was actually filmed at night, and you can see that we have sort of a fake daylight in the background there. You just sort of have to film when you can film. Now, unfortunately, that's just a still shot of the sunrise because we didn't have enough footage to actually be worth it. And again, we had to estimate what the armholes would look like because when we filmed this, we hadn't filmed the other sequence yet, so they really just sort of cut out holes in the door. We didn't really know what the aftermath would look like when we really filmed it. So there. Yep, everything's okay now. Not a worry in the world. Now, coming up, uh, you'll see quite a fun little shot. Uh, it was pretty much an afterthought, to my understanding, of, well, how do we end this movie with a little zing? So we end it with the ultimate sort of force shot, starting on a single leaf and roving all the way through from the back woods there, all the way through the back cabin. This we used the assistance of about two or three local people because all of our crew members had fled. Uh, one to yank this back door open Sam would call out on a cue. It was Sam running with the camera. Third person here pulling doors apart. And Sam would basically just 
run directly into me. There was a rumor that's been going around for years now that Sam actually rode a motorcycle, put the camera on the motorcycle and rammed into me. And we've sort of perpetuated that lie for years, so I'm not really gonna tell you whether it's true or not. Um, we go back to this sort of um, happy music at the end because I think Sam figured that the movie's grim and miserable enough. Let's go with some sort of happy, upbeat music. So it, it adds a good sort of um, cross purposes to the whole thing. But you'll find as the credits continue to play on, this song will get very distant and echoey and will start to slow down because Sam's theory was everything dies in this movie. Everything. So it's slowly dying here and getting more and more obscure. Eventually it'll start to slow down and we'll come to a slow and halting death and you're going to be left with just that sort of haunting sound. Here we go. And it's dead. Now we just have that wind again. Now, fake shimps, that credit, everyone says, well, what's a fake shimp? Well, when we did movies in high school, um, we would always lose our actors. And so we had to get someone in to take their place. So we called them fake shimps after the Three Stooges. So there you have it, folks. Thanks for watching. Watch the sequels.